Um, hi everyone, thanks for listening. Today I'm speaking with Rahil Raza. Rahil is the president for of uh, Muslims for for tomorrow. Facing tomorrow. Uh, Muslims facing tomorrow, and she's on the advisory board for the Clarion Project. Hi Rahil, thank you very much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, I was just wondering if you could maybe give a little bit of your background for people who don't know, and then we can go from there. Okay. Well, I am a Pakistani-born Canadian. And I am an activist for human rights, uh, very involved in uh, matters of uh, rights of women in Muslim-majority societies. I am an author, a journalist. Um, I have made a documentary. I am a bit of a playwright. I'm a grandmother. And uh, I am retired from a government job. And now I focus my time uh, full-time on my my organization, the Council for Muslims Facing Tomorrow. Okay. And, like, so, I mean, I've seen you, I've seen you speak, I've seen some videos and stuff you do. So, how do you find, like, especially today, um, I mean, I've noticed, basically, since 9-11, if you start talking about Islam, all of a sudden you're slammed as a racist or a bigot. Um, like, how do you navigate that? Like, how do you navigate speaking about Islam at the same time, not trying to fuel hatred and that kind of stuff? You know, it's a very slippery slope. Uh, it's a huge challenge because uh, now, these days especially, um, I find that I am totally squeezed between the two extremes, uh, you know, the extreme left and the extreme right. And for me, um, for a while ago, left and right were just directions. Uh, you know, I don't really think in terms of left and right, but unfortunately, it's out there. So if I speak about Islam as my spiritual journey, which it is, I'm an observant practicing Muslim, I get slammed by those on the right saying, oh, you know, she, she is a Muslim, so, you know, that's problematic, and I automatically get lumped uh, with everyone else. And, uh, you know, on the other side, we've got the Islamists who uh, are critiquing me for speaking out against the problems within the Muslim world, which are too many to, uh, you know, number right here. But you're as aware of them as I am. Uh, you know, we're dealing with issues of terrorism, radicalization, oppression of women's rights. You see what's happening in Iran. You see what's happening in Saudi Arabia. There's no end of, to it. And of course, I, I'm a native Pakistani. I was born in Pakistan. I'm concerned about uh, the persecution of minorities in Pakistan and, of course, the same issue of the rights of women. And I've never held back on speaking out because to me, this uh, critique, this looking internally is a very important aspect of my faith. And it's something that we have to do. As Muslims, I feel morally and ethically obliged to speak out first before someone else says something, because they will always be labeled a, a racist and a bigot. So it's a very fine line. It's a very difficult, slippery slope. And uh, basically, it doesn't matter what I say, I get slammed. So I figure I'm just going to say what I want to say. Yeah, I mean, I kind of jokingly said it. Uh, I know you're still believing, like, I'm an ex-Muslim. Um, but I kind of said, you know, like, those of us who are talking out, you know, even the ex-Muslims, we are walking a difference throughout the Muslim, you know, like the, the narrow path, the true path, yeah. you know, it's, 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 we have to, because I, I don't want, obviously I don't want my family hurt. I don't want anything to happen to my family when I speak out. I don't want people to vilify Muslims because I say, okay, I'm opposed to forced hijab, you know, yes. and, or if I'm opposed to, like you said, what's happening in Pakistan with the minority communities or in Bangladesh or, you know, yeah. any place in the Middle East. You know, if I speak out about that, I don't want to feed the hatred, but at the same time, I don't want to stay silent about, you know, human rights being quelled. Well, you know, the reality is that speaking out about human rights transgressions should not be considered hatred. It should not feed the hatred. What we are doing is exposing the problem so that we can find solutions. Now, at Muslims Facing Tomorrow, where, which is my organization, we have a mandate of what I call the three E's. And, you know, I believe we have to expose the problem, we have to educate the masses, and we have to then empower for change from within. Now, whether you're a Muslim, ex-Muslim, Jewish, Christian, Buddhist, it doesn't matter. 
in the end, all what what rises above all of this is our humanity. Uh, you know, my faith is a very personal matter to me. Uh, your being an ex-Muslim is a very personal matter to you. But what is happening in uh, to humanity? What is happening to our core within our faith? What is happening to our core religion is is something that impacts all of us. And uh, you know, I'm as I said, I'm a grandmother. I look at the uh, future of the next generations. And I believe that we have to clean up the mess that has been left by the Islamists. So one thing that I do, Bed, whenever I speak in public and whenever I write, I try to differentiate between Islam as a faith and Islamism as a political ideology. And, uh, you know, help people understand that when we speak about Islamism or Islamists, what we are critiquing uh, is an ideology. It's, a, it's not even... I mean, it is it stems from Islam, but it is an ideology that wants to rule, that uh, wants hegemony, that is about patriarchy. It's about power. It's about politics. It has nothing to do with spirituality. No, I mean, and that's I mean, again, I try to do the same myself. I try to differentiate between, okay, I'm talking about an ideology and, you know, it doesn't have like a lot of people focus too much on terrorism which I'm not saying terrorism is a good thing, but it's the most visceral. It's the most, you know, it's, it's the tip of the iceberg. There's so much underneath it, you know, where you're denying like what they're doing in Brunei now and everyone's taking a tent, taking notice. Oh, they're stoning, you know, they're stoning the LGBT community to death, but then they're not talking about, they also want to stone blasphemers. They also want to stone people who insult the prophet. They want to stone to death uh, adulterers. And then they threw in rapists as there in there as well. So they're, you know, they're bunching, all this together or like Saudi Arabia saying okay we're going to fight terrorism but then they make atheism a terrorist defense so it's yes I, I agree with you that we are just skimming the surface um, many of us are just finding band-aid solutions to what seems to be the overt problem but I'll tell you this that even before 9-11 those of us who are concerned about what is happening in the Muslim world have been speaking out about the ideology we have to go back to the to the core and, and the foundation of where this is coming from. If we are going to uh, critique what is happening in Brunei, we need to go back and see where it's coming from. It is the use of Sharia and you know Hadith, uh, the secondary texts, which are very problematic. But you, you'll notice that people don't talk about that because that seems to be a sort of a no-no. Uh, you know, they won't go to the core of the problem and say, look, there's got to be something uh, wrong within an ideology where they can use a religion to justify uh, these inhuman practices, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, whether it's in Brunei, whether it's in Pakistan or anywhere else. What the Islamists do continuously is use faith to justify their actions. And um, unfortunately, there are many aspects of hadith and sharia which are very problematic and we need to talk about it but that conversation doesn't happen because muslims non-muslims everybody has a knee-jerk reaction they get very sensitive about it and of course there's a lack of information so uh you know the lack of knowledge leads to people slamming what is happening overtly without uh, sort of going, uh, scratching the surface and going into the background to see where is this coming from. Yeah, I mean, I I keep trying to like, trying to move the conversation in that direction, saying, look, let's talk about, you know, people will complain, oh, look what's being done, um, you know, Mike Pence or someone in the States from the Republican Party, oh, look, they're, they're going to be prosecuting homosexuals. Well, when I say that about Islam, why am I then vilified, right? I mean, I, I, I think, like... Yes. It, okay, an education needs to happen, but unfortunately, uh, uh, like, I find that those, you know, like, people like you who are speaking out, um, people like, you know, Sam Harris or Majid Nawaz, and they were saying it, and, you know, don't leave the space to the bad actors. And I found that it's... it's yes, yes. Like, by not having this conversation, it's only bad actors or majority bad actors there right now. Well, the Islamists have taken over the narrative. And this is something we discovered in the work that we've been doing for so long. And we allowed them to. 
So in some ways we are to blame. You know, people say moderate Muslims, progressive Muslims. It doesn't matter what the label is. The fact is that we are Muslims trying to live in the 21st century and we're trying to look at aspects of our, our faith and saying that, you know, those notions that were applicable in the 7th century need no longer be applicable today. So let's look at it. I mean, um, the Jews have done it. The Christians have done it. You know, let's move ahead. Look at those aspects and leave them behind in the parking lot of the 7th century, bring ourselves into the 21st century, live by the Universal Charter of Human Rights. Uh, and, you know, we are speaking out, but you can see we are getting slammed from all sides. So I have, you know, death threats, fatwa, hate mail, um, been sued by an organization for call, calling them a terrorist organization, which they are. But this is what happens. And of course, my being a Muslim woman, doubles the whammy here because they don't like the idea of a woman speaking out. So, you know, I have the I, I have a double uh, sort of aspect of this being pushed back against me. But that doesn't uh, stop me. You know, uh, when I turned 50, I decided I have two choices. I can either be popular or I can pursue truth and justice. And I decided I really don't want to be popular. I don't care if people don't like me. But I have to speak the truth because I want to sleep at night. And if the truth is vested in aspects of my own faith, I am going to speak about it because that's how reform comes. That's how change comes. It doesn't come by sitting uh, on our hands and saying, no, no, everything is wonderful, uh, you know, in the Muslim world because it's not. And, you know, in the world we live in today, it's, it's all out there. Of course, uh, you have to understand that when people like Majid and myself speak up, we are sometimes considered to be playing to uh, the right or to the Zionists because, uh, you know, we are critiquing aspects of our faith. But we are doing it to bring about change and to suggest an alternate. We are not doing it because we hate Islam or Muslims. That's not correct. And so, um, as you say, it's, it's a very fine line we walk. Yeah, I mean, that, that too, like I I don't, I, I can't imagine the amount of stuff you get, and even like friends of mine, like I'm friends with Yasmin Muhammad, and you know, she gets so much, and I kind of, I, you know, like I, I'm not big enough on anyone's radar to really come after me, but the little I do get, I can't imagine what, what women get, I mean, I see some of the stuff Yasmin gets, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's the most well, vile stuff. It is, I mean, it's, it's obscene, and, and of course, <clears throat> you know, declaring herself openly as an ex-Muslim just makes it worse. So, you know, at least I have this little bit of a security blank blanket of being able to say that I'm still, you know, I'm part of the faith, I'm an observant practicing Muslim. Not that that makes any difference to anyone else, but it's a fact and it's something that I uh, will say if someone uh, questions me. But those who have made this, uh, you know, taken this step to, to leave the faith, they, of course, are, you know, walking around with a target on their foreheads. Uh, because it's so dangerous, and uh, the the pushback is absolutely obscene. I wanted to talk to you about, uh, and it's a term I only heard in about 2015. I'd never heard it my whole life until around 2014 or 15, which is Takia. And, <laughs> and the first time I heard it, okay, you're from Pakistan. I grew up in Hyderabad, in the, or I was born in Hyderabad in India. So I thought they were talking Takia, like the, yeah. the, 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 the word for pillow. I'm like, what is this? Yeah. And now, to me, like, when I hear someone say it, I'm like, okay, that's a red flag. Like, this person is not serious. They don't really know what they're talking about. Yeah. Because, okay, I, I saw a sheikh speaking with someone on YouTube, and he was talking about this, like, trying to reform and trying to mod modernize religion. So he was talking about some of the corporal punishment. So he said, okay, like, they're cutting off the arm for thieves. So that was valid 1,400 years ago. But now, you know, we can maybe look for another solution, and that's... You know, that would be your last, last option. Let's yeah. find another solution. And in some of the comments on the video, people are like, oh, this guy's not really a Muslim. He's Or he's a Muslim and he's, he's committing taqiyya because he wants to lie to you. <laughs> and it's, you know, like this term has gained some purchase and it's silly. Yeah, it it, it's yeah, it is. And I'm glad you brought this up because uh, this um, actually, uh, you know, come, goes to the, the, the root of, uh, part of the problem, which is which is ignorance. Like you, I had never heard of the word takia until I came to Canada. And initially, I also thought it was pillow takia because I'm an Urdu speaker. 
but um, I, it has been used more and more. And it has been used for me as well. So when I stand up and say that, you know, I'm a progressive, liberal, modern Muslim and I, and I believe in human rights above uh, religion, oh, they look at me and they say, oh, she, she's doing that. Yeah. So I started investigating it. Now, fortunately, I'm married to a man who's a Shia. And I don't know if you're aware that this uh, term, Takiyah, was in, used uh, by people of the Shia leaning much more. And it was a term that was used only, I mean, it was a permission that was given to Shia Muslims initially, and then the Sunnis also picked up on it, to be able to lie in order to save their lives in self-defense. That if they are cornered and their life is in danger, they can lie and say that they are not Muslims. But, you know, unfortunately, both the Islamists and those on the extreme left and right have picked it up. When somebody wants to silence a Muslim who is trying to bring about reform, they say they are doing taqiyya. Happens all the time. It's becoming very common. And I find it very frustrating that non-Muslims, white Westerners, will use terminology without understanding what it really means. And part of my work is to try and educate the masses to understand that, yes, there are aspects of Sharia that are very dangerous, that are very wrong, that can't be applied today. There are aspects of law which are very uh, dangerous and inhuman and they should not be applied today. But, uh, you know, when they don't agree with something, you're immediately called a takfiri or you're doing takia. And, you know, it comes up every single time I go out and speak in public. Someone will raise their hand and ask about Takiyah, you know, there are some standard questions that come up. You know, the, the Quran is a violent book. The Prophet, God forbid, was a, a pedophile. Uh, that, you know, Muslims do Takiyah, so don't trust them, don't believe them. Now, my thought on this is that if you want change in the Muslim world, I mean, here you are critiquing terrorism, radicalization, what is happening, women's rights. If we want to bring about change, then there should be support for those of us who are trying to bring about that change. Uh, we can't do this alone. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you. That's, that's um, a lot of people are like, oh, well, why do you want to speak with Muslims? I'm like, no, I want to speak to anyone who is for human rights, wants to promote, you know, enlightenment values, you know, universally human rights, and... I might be opposed to religion, I might think religion is false, but that doesn't mean that if, you know, you come to some agreement or someone comes to some agreement and they can they can take their faith, modernize it and, you know, say okay, I don't need I don't need the bits where I have to stone someone to death, right? You know, I can I can leave those behind. Those belong in the in the 7th century. Yes. You know, yes. And I want to help people be able to do that. Like I would much rather prefer someone like you who is religious but believes in secular values and believes in universal human rights as opposed to someone who's an atheist that not we should ban all religion close down all houses of worship and not let everyone anyone worship i don't want any part of that right you know the the the, the question that comes up is and, and i often address this to my audiences and i say look there are 1.6 maybe 10 1.10 billion muslims in the world today uh, you have every right and you have a freedom not to like Islam, not to like Muslims. But what are you going to do? They're not going to change overnight. They're not going to leave their faith. All we can do, those of us who are still in the faith, is to try and reform the way they are practicing their faith in the 21st century. And that is part of the Muslim reform movement, which I am one of the founding members. That is part of the work that we do at Muslims Facing Tomorrow. Uh, that is part of the work that I do 24-7, is to, to try and bring about a change from within, because that is where the reform comes from. And so uh, I agree with you that, um, you know, to me, it doesn't matter whether one is a believer or a non-believer, because as I said, that is a very personal, uh, a very personal connection. What is important is how we are living our lives. What is important is the humanity. What is important is the universal charter of human rights. And we believe in all of that. What is important is separation of mosque and state. What is important is gender equality. You know, I will fight tooth and nail till my last breath 
for the rights of women in Iran, in Pakistan, in Saudi Arabia, um, everywhere. So, you know, these conversations need to be had. Just pushing back and, and hating does not solve the problem. I mean, violence doesn't solve the problem either. So we have to find nonviolent ways in which we can have the conversations, in which we can have the difficult conversations. Now, you may be aware that there is this big, uh, you know, uh, very sexy idea of interfaith dialogue. And I used to be very involved in interfaith dialogue 30 years ago when I came to Canada. Then I realized that this was just fluff stuff. What they were doing is sitting and talking about my samosas and your pierogi and your know, latkes and, you know, Eid and Passover and Christmas, they were not talking about the, the real issues. They were not talking about the difficult issues. What we need to have more than anything else is the difficult conversations, is the conversations across the board, the really hard stuff, and be able to have these conversations without killing each other and to listen to each other. There is so much that I believe as a Muslim that I can learn from the Jews and the Christians and the Hindus and the Sikhs because everyone faces, uh, you know, these extremes. And there is a rise of fundamentalism across the board. It is happening in Hinduism. It is happening. I mean, the Buddhists were supposed to be peaceful people. But look at what is happening there. So definitely, uh, you know, religion uh, is, is a cause of great strife, but it can also be a cause of peace and harmony, I believe, if we are able to have these difficult conversations. Yeah, I mean, okay, I know you talked about reform. I've, the way I look at it is, I don't know, because Christianity had the one thing of, you know, Christ said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, and then he also said, you know, give unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, give, you know, give unto God that which is God. So you, you had that separation put in. I always felt that it would be a better way to go about not necessarily trying to reform the text because that's going to be hard to do, but reform how Muslims think uh, about their religion. Um, I have a friend of mine, I think you probably know him, Faisal Al-Mutar, who's yeah. an organization called Ideas Beyond Borders. Right. And I think this is one of the best ideas I've heard of uh, because what they're doing is translating books on science and philosophy into Arabic and making them available. Um, online, I believe they've also started doing Farsi and in Kurdish as well. Yeah. And to me, that's okay. So you get these ideas out there. So they have a way of thinking. Okay, you can practice your faith, but you can be free. You don't have to live under these limits. I think if given the choice, people would rather be free and open and allowed yeah. to be make make mistakes rather than live under you know the iron boot of any kind of totalitarian system. Be it you know. A Muslim theocracy, or the Hindutva in in India, or you know uh, the rise of far right white nationalism in Europe, uh, especially Eastern Europe. I mean, I, I don't think anyone wants to live under the you know the heel of authoritarian governments if given the choice. And I think well, that the important point here is if given the choice. So those of us who are living in the West obviously have that choice of living freely. But what about the millions and billions who are living in under theocracies? Uh, you know, they unfortunately don't have the choice of being free. They don't have freedom of voice. They don't have freedom of choice. They don't even have freedom of uh, religion in, in terms of being able to follow whichever sect that they want to. You know, uh, Sufis and Shias are massacred and, and persecuted. And so uh, within within the religions, uh, religion, there is a lot of of strife. So while I agree that yes, it's very important to have ideas and bring science and technology and modernity into uh, the faith, it is also extremely important to address the core foundational problems. I personally think, and this is just my opinion, that unless we can do away with, uh, you know, the problematic hadith and Sharia from our faith, we're never going to have the reform because people keep going back to that and using it as their core uh, foundational values. So when, when that is going to happen, whether it's in my lifetime or not, but there are scholars working on it. And I think it's extremely important that we have that reform understanding as well. Yeah, I mean, I was a little, okay, I, let's say maybe go back 10 years and I was maybe more hopeful that South Asia, they would start being more of a 
perform and more of a relaxation going on there. Maybe I was just uh, hopeful. And But after seeing what's going on in the Middle East as opposed to what's going on, let's say, in Pakistan, um, I'm actually more hopeful for the Middle East because the I, you know, they're, they're, I see more young people speaking out in the Middle East. I see, like, especially what's happening in Iran right now. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas then I look at Pakistan, and one thing that always strikes me in Pakistan was a couple of years back when there was a clerical error. They took out the line that Muhammad was the last prophet from the oath of office for politicians, and the population rioted. Yeah, and they went, went crazy the because they thought <laughs> the government was relaxing just a little bit, so they went crazy. So that's where I think I'm, I'm actually more optimistic about the Middle East now than I am about some place like Pakistan because in the Middle East it's the population that wants to change whereas it seems like in Pakistan the population doesn't even want to have any kind of change. So I'm thinking like Pakistan is an example of something that will come back to bite Saudi because I mean Saudi funded all those mosques and those madrasas. Yes, yeah. they did. They did. But um, being, um, I travel very frequently to Pakistan. And I will tell you that I'm very uh, impressed with the younger generation. Uh, They sort of have had enough. The only problem in Pakistan is that there are no institutions. And of course, the government is corrupt and we see what is happening right now. So the work of the activists on the ground, which is incredible, does not reach the top. Um, Yes, you see a lot of change in the Middle East, but any country which has been funded by either Qatar or Saudi Arabia or Iran, and Pakistan is a perfect example, uh, you know, the the, uh, struggle for power between the Sunnis of Saudi Arabia and the Shias of Iran, uh, you know, the, uh, the playground for that is countries like Pakistan, where they each keep on funding more and more. And whenever you see that happening, uh, then, of course, it's very problematic because their ideology is being promoted on the backs of billions of petrodollars. And I've seen this happen. I have seen uh, the change. And this is one of the reasons that my husband and I left. Uh, you know, the, the change from a very uh, liberal, modern upbringing, which was my childhood, where it was a different Pakistan, it was a different Islam. Uh, You know, luckily I'm at an age where I can look back and see that, yes, there is hope because I grew up, uh, you know, with an Islam which wasn't thrust down my my throat. I mean, it was, you know, I studied in co-education and, uh, you know, there was music and then there was um, happiness. Now everything is dark and dreary and uh, Pakistanis have an identity crisis where they're being told that unless they're Arabs, they're not good enough Muslims. So that is very problematic. And at the same time, like you, I also see hope and change in Iran and in the Middle East. And my main hope is the younger generation who are so fed up of waking up every morning and trying to figure out, you know, what they're going to do with their lives. That is where the hope is. And if the governments can support them, um, I hope that that change will come. My mom grew up in Karachi. She was born in Hyderabad in India, and then her family moved to Pakistan after partition. So she was about four, I think. Um, so, I mean, I see pictures of her when she was in university. And she's wearing a shalwar khamiz, but, yo, know, it's loose. There, she doesn't have her hair covered. Right. Her friends are all, you know, her and her friends are all wearing sunglasses, looking as fashionable <laughs> as possible. And then, I mean, maybe I'm mistaken on this. I, I haven't spent a lot of time in Pakistan. I spent more time in India. But I, my, my way of thinking was after 72, when they made it an Islamic-based education system, I'm thinking that's where it kind of started having a more of a downturn going towards this extremist ideology. I don't know if I'm correct there or... Well, the extremist ideology came into Pakistan when we had a president called General Ziaul Haq. Uh, General Ziaul Haq was a military dictator, but he was very empowered by Saudi Arabia. He had gone there, uh, met the leadership, and then taken a lot of money from them. And that's when the money, when the Saudi money started coming into Pakistan, and Pakistan, of course, needed that Saudi money to survive. Now, whenever there is money being poured in, there's obviously an agenda. And I was in Pakistan at the end of the 1970s when we saw this change. Uh, Exactly as you're saying, suddenly women on mainstream media had to be covered. Uh, Schools that had been co-education were separated. There was nationalization of the education system. So this ideology we saw creeping in. And of course, today it's taken hold fully uh, in Pakistan, where a majority of the mosques are 
you know, have been bought out by the Saudis or the Shia mosques by the Iranis. So as I said, the turf war between Iran and Saudi Arabia is being fought out in Pakistan. And so that is when this sort of, you know, extremism started coming in. And we see the results of that. And, and, and mostly we see it in the culture, which used to be a very lively culture because of their connection with India. Uh, you know, my mother never wore a hijab the way uh, Saudi women do today. Uh, I grew up in a very modern, well, I would say a middle class family, but we were modern. Uh, you know, as I said, religion was never thrust down our throats. It was there, but it was a part of everything else that we were we were doing. But now, of course, it's a whole different um, understanding. Hopefully, this new young man that we have now as a leader, Imran Khan, uh, you know, he is educated. He's not from a feudal system. Uh, he has brought about some changes. And I was in Pakistan very recently, and I was very pleasantly surprised to see that there is a change. Uh, you know, young people are feeling more empowered to, to do more stuff. There's creativity, there's activism. It just needs to come to the top. I wanted to talk to you about one, like you've done a video uh, for Clarion called By the Numbers. And yeah. it was, uh, you expanded on something Sam Harris talked about, like the concentric circles. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to touch on this was um, like the shooting that just recently happened in Christchurch. Yeah. Immediately after that, I saw friends of mine who are white putting up, one put up a pyramid that said it had just had whiteness at the bottom and the mm -hmm. pyramid started rising. And at the top, you had white supremacy. And he said, okay, even if you're white and you don't think you're racist, you're actually racist and you help create white supremacy. And then a couple others had put this paragraph that someone had written, basically saying the same thing, that even if you have you know, friends who aren't white and you're, you're completely open, you have to admit your guilt and say that whiteness is responsible for all white supremacy. And so... When I started hearing that, I was going, I was like, this is not the right way. So mm -hmm. I tried explaining it along the same lines. I said, okay, look, if you take Islam and you have at the very center groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, then take your white people. At the very center, you'll have the guy in, uh, in Christchurch. You'll have like groups like the KKK, you know, Aryan Nation, that kind of stuff, and then expand out. But as I was doing it, I, some of the people I was speaking to it was all on identity. They're like, no, if you're white, it doesn't matter. You're responsible. You're to blame. And to me, it was like, maybe that's why they don't understand that when I'm criticizing the hijab, mm -hmm. or I'm criticizing uh, an Ahmadi mosque being burned down in Pakistan, I'm not criticizing Muslims. I'm criticizing an ideology. But if they can't understand that whiteness does not yeah. equate white supremacy, and yeah. this term whiteness just... Uh, it's a, I had, <laughs> I had addressed this many years ago. In fact, when um, it, it was right after 9-11 and I had given an interview and I had referred to white liberal guilt. And, uh, you know, this is a symptom of that. And Christchurch, unfortunately, uh, when it should have had a very, um, you know, harmonizing effect of bringing people together has really polarized uh, people. And uh, so what you're talking about, this idea that people have started believing that if you're white, you're automatically guilty. There is also the other side of it. Anyone who has ever criticized Islam, Muslims, or any aspect of Islam or Muslims is to blame for Christchurch. Organizations like the Council on American Islamic Relations, you know who they are. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, the general um, idea that they are floating is that people like me are responsible for Christchurch because we have criticized aspects of Islam. So either way, it is extremist uh, ideology. You know, the extremist ideology is not not just within Islam. It is there, um, you know, among, among the, the left. It is there uh, in the right. And basically what we have lost is the ability to have, be on the balanced path, to, you know, have a balanced perspective about everything. Christchurch was a terrible, terrible tragedy. It should never happen to anyone. It should never happen to any human being. You know, it was really terrible. But what did we learn from it? We need to, and I've written an op-ed about this. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on the Clarion page. And I said, uh, instead of just making Islamophobia 
the main concern after Christchurch, we should be looking and seeing how are we treating our, by we I mean Muslims are treating minorities in Muslim majority societies. Uh, you know, so um, we unfortunately don't talk, we don't reflect, uh, we don't do the ishtihad, which is such an important part of uh, my faith, and I believe that that's the, the concept that we have lost out. People are just <clears throat> fixated. And now we have the rise of the regressive left, as Majid Nawaz calls it. You know, they are in uh, collusion with the Islamists and support them in their very, very, uh, you know, obscene causes. Uh, but this is exactly what we are up against. And it is becoming more and more difficult, let me tell you, to speak out as a Muslim. It is becoming more and more difficult to speak out as a reformist Muslim, as an activist, as a Muslim woman. And sometimes I wonder why do I even do it? But as I said, it's something I have to sleep at night knowing I did my part. You brought up care. Um, I was going to mention this, but because they wanted to put it, in, they wanted to bring in legislation, or they're pushing to have legislation brought in in the states, or at least they're making noises about that. That you know, using the terms Islamic terrorism yes. is Islamophobia, and I believe in Ontario there was a private members bill that was just brought in about that. Oh, oh, yes. Tell me about that. <laughs> we have in Canada, we have in Ontario something called M103. Uh, which is uh, Motion 103. That I know, will... I'm not talking about M103, but recently I just read an article um, oh. that an NDP leader... She oh, brought yes, up... yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. like M103, okay, M103 I'm disgusted by. Um, I read the report that came out after it, and it still does not have a definition of what Islamophobia right. is. And I mean, I, I don't like that term. I would much prefer, like, anti-Muslim hatred or yes. anti-Muslim bigotry. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, uh, I don't know also if you've read the... Uh, there was a report that came out from the UK where their government had given a definition of Islamophobia, and that's horrendous. Um, <laughs> it basically says that you know, criticizing, calling it Islamic terrorism is Islamophobia. That it's, it basically tells you to shut up. That's yeah. what it is. It's a way of shutting down conversation. And all these movements, uh, you know, they're all um, shutting down, and very effectively. You know, Canadians are terrified to say anything. I mean, Canadians by nature are very peace-loving people. I mean, this is something I've learned in my 30 years of work here. They do not like conflict. So when I used to go out and speak, I had to change my terminology when I speak in Canada and when I speak in the United States because Canadians do not like any kind of conflict. They do not like terminology that that relates to conflict. So now, with, you know, with, with all that has happened after Christchurch, they are just terrified of speaking out. And this has given Islamists full freedom to promote their agendas. I mean, just anything and anyone is shut up because it's Islamophobic. And I hate the term Islamophobia, I have to tell you this. There is anti-Muslim racism, there is anti-Muslim bigotry, but if you look at the statistics in Canada, they are not the highest on, on, on Muslim uh, racism. The LGBTQ community, the black community, the Jewish community, they have received much higher a percentage of hate, which is not a good thing and it should not happen. But it's not as though Muslims are being, um, uh, you know, being being offended on the streets as they're walking. They have full freedoms to promote their uh, agendas and, and their religious accommodation needs. And they're pushing it as far as they can go. And you know, what I'm afraid of is that there's going to come a point where non-Muslims, Canadians, Americans are going to push back. And that has started happening. Uh, you know, they, they see the uh, the imbalanced um, a sort of um, patronizing of Muslims and their causes, and they're feeling very uncomfortable about it. Speaking of that, how do you feel about this new law in Quebec? Um, I'm, I'm actually opposed <laughs> to it. But, you know, the law I'm talking about is the one where yes. no yeah, public, yeah, no religious symbols by any public mm -hmm. official, right? You know, it's a very, it's a challenging uh, situation. On the one hand, we're talking about freedoms, right? So as someone like you and me who supports, uh, you know, freedom, freedom of expression, obviously banning something doesn't really solve the problem. I also know that this came about because of the niqab and it has been very badly handled, unfortunately. But, um, you know, 
the, the, the point is, are religious symbols more important than secularism and more important than the separation of mosque and state? So I'm not really sure how to address this issue quite yet, because, again, it goes against freedoms. But on the other hand, people are not if they're not responsible enough on how to use their freedoms. Uh, you know, niqab and burqa are really a social issue there. I don't even. Um, uh, speak out against them from a religious perspective. I have always said that they are a security and a social issue. Um, many years ago, uh, our organization, uh, when when uh, Stephen Harper was uh, here, was was in power, we had sent, uh, you know, a three-page recommendation about why the burqa should be banned. But we didn't base it on religion. We based it because, of course, it's not a religious symbol. We based it on security and, and the social issues and the medical evidence that has come forth from UK about women uh, suffering from rickets with, you know, not being exposed to the sun. So we presented it from that perspective with four points. And I still stand by that. I don't believe that the niqab and Boka have a place in Western society. Uh, but of course, then there is the whole issue of freedoms. Okay, I'm just going to put a pin in the niqab and the Boka for a second. but. My reasoning of why I'm opposed to this law, and it's not like it because I have any love of the hijab or, you know, and if you take them, like you said, if you just take, in a vacuum, if you take the ideologies of the Abrahamic faith, there's a lot of pernicious stuff in there. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that, you know, I'm just talking about in a vacuum, nothing else. And so each of those, you know, a crucifix, a yarmulke, uh, the Orthodox and the Hasidic uh, Jewish women who wear the, their, I think I believe it's called a shaitel or something like that. It's a wig that they wear. Some of them shave their head. All of those things, the ideology behind them in the books, like I said, if you just take it in a vacuum, can be, there are very, a lot of pernicious things. That in and of itself. But I also look at it, um, I wrote a thing for when they do the World Hijab Day, I wrote a thing for No Hijab Day. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, it's an awful lot of weight to put on a little girl that she's responsible for her family's piety. She's responsible for, you know, how her family's looked if she doesn't wear the hijab and all that. Right. In the reverse, I know ex-Muslim women who are haven't aren't open, but they have to wear it because their family makes them, mm. and they hate it. Mm. So to put on that woman everything that the hijab represents and say you represent all that, that is also a, an awful lot of weight to put on her. Yeah. Or even if it's a Muslim woman who doesn't particularly want to wear it, or she wears it. And she's wearing it. I know some that started wearing it after Trump came in and he was all his talks with the Muslim ban and all that. And they put it on as an identity thing. So I'm yeah. saying, okay, we have freedom of religion, we have freedom of expression, but we also have innocent until proven guilty. Mm -hmm. If just by the dint of something someone is wearing, you're saying you believe this, this, and this because you're wearing that, mm -hmm. we are not giving them a presumption of innocence. We're, we're just making them guilty. And in my mind, that is bigotry. That is discrimination just based on a physical thing. You don't know the person. You don't know anything about them. Right. They may be able to carry out their job. They may be able to do their mm -hmm. job without any prejudice well, against yeah, them. That, that's exactly the fine line that we are walking. Mm -hmm. you, you're, you're right, between rights and freedoms. But you know, with rights and freedoms comes a sense of responsibility as well. And I think that communities need to take on this sense of responsibility and have these in, in, inner discussions uh, about you know, what works and what doesn't. And we're not having those discussions because it's a question of, okay, I'm going to do it because this is my right and my freedom. But yes, what about your sense of responsibility? Oh, yeah. But I mean, okay, we can, like, I would much rather people have a conversation like this about this because everything I see online is, oh my God, you're racist for putting up in this law and like, oh, you you want to push Islam and, and it's like, okay, <laughs> why, you know, but yes. this is a this is a fight about religious symbols. So why are people focusing just on Islam? Yes. Like you know, they, you know, it's not just Muslims that are affected. Sikhs will yes. be affected. Exactly. You know, Christians, Jews. Mm -hmm. I was talking to my mom about it. I said, well, what about the you know, like some Sikh men wear those silver bracelets? Yeah, that's a religious symbol. The kirpan, of yeah. course. Okay, the kirpan's a knife. So yeah. you know, we, we but that little. But bracelet. yes, but they wear. There are Sikhs who you know have to wear the turban and. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree that we're not having these discussions. It's all just opinions. And of course, everything then comes down to Islam. And, and that is a common denominator. It's a reality that we have to live with. 
I, you know, it doesn't matter which way you look at it. Basically, it comes down to Islam and Muslims. And we, unfortunately, as a community, have not dealt with it very well. You know that as much as I do. We, we don't even have that harmony within our own communities where we can have these dialogues. I mean, you know, we can't even get over this Shia-Sunni divide, which was never so divided as when, when I was growing up. Uh, you know, when, again, it goes back to this whole push for division and sectarianism. Um, those conversations don't happen. Yeah, I mean, okay, when you're talking about how it's difficult to have a conversation. Uh, so this is a couple of years ago. I was at my, um, I was at my uncle's place for Eid, and you know, there's a few of us sitting around talking, and there was my uncle and then a couple of family friends, and they were talking about the mosque, and they said, oh, well, you know, last Friday, the guy who they gave the khutbah, he was really good. Uh, and for anyone who doesn't know, the khutbah is the sermon after the prayer. Uh, you know, he's, I like the way this guy speaks. He's, you know, he's very moderate. He's very relaxed. I don't like the way the other imams speak because they're too political. And these are men in their 70s. And I said, well, why don't you say something in the mosque? And they were, they were shocked because they're like, well, we can't, we can't say anything in the mosque. We might get thrown out. Yeah. And it's like, okay, you're, you're grown men with children yeah. and grandchildren. You know, maybe if you can't speak freely, it's not a place for you. Like, I mean, and they're still afraid to speak out yeah. because of standing in the community. And it's... Yes, yes. Oh, you're so right. We have allowed so much uh, to be said that shouldn't have been said because we are afraid to stand up and critique what the imam says. And, you know, what the alternate is that people just stop going to the mosque, to the mosque or that mosque. Um, this is what happened with my sons as they were growing up. Uh, they were mosque going until they started realizing that the sermons were so politicized that it was not of any interest to them. So instead of standing up and speaking out, they just stopped going. Yeah, I mean, I... It, okay, that was... Okay, going back to... This is about myself. This was in the late... Uh, so I was... I was 16 when I stopped believing. Um, there was a gradual process from 11 to 16, and I told my parents uh, when I was 22. Uh, I was just... I was 16. I was afraid of what they were going to say, you know. But... Once I did come open with them, one of the things they mentioned to me was, and it was one of the, you know, it was a couple of days of yelling and screaming and why are you doing this and that? And then they said, okay, well, fine, just don't tell anyone. And, okay, I've got a smart mouth. I've always got myself in trouble with my mouth. And the first thing that came out of my mouth was, well, it seems like you're more afraid of, you know, you're more concerned about your social standing than my immortal soul. <laughs> I mean, but, but that's what it was. Well, they, they... Yeah, the honor system, you know, uh, we are tribal communities. We come from that background of 1400 years ago of the tribal understanding. And this is part of it. It is the honor culture and it is the tribal culture, which is what what are people going to say? I grew up with this, um, you know, not honor killing, but this idea that honor is very important. What are people going to say? It has always been about, and being a woman, you can understand as, as a girl, when I was growing up, it was always about what people were going to say. It wasn't about you have an identity, you have a personality, and you have a right to ask questions. No, it is if you ask too many questions as a girl, what are people going to say? So I totally understand, you know, the, the whole issue of, uh, you know, being more concerned about community and being ostracized with the community. So this brings me back to what you had mentioned. The reason why many Muslims don't speak out against what they see happening is because they're afraid of being uh, sort of, uh, you know, what is it, put on the fringe of their community, their society. They want to be able to be invited to biryani parties. They have to get their children married. And, you know, these things become more important. And, and, I, and I respect and understand that. But I'm frustrated because then we've got the silent majority who will sit in my living room and agree with everything that I'm saying. But if I ask them to, to come to a rally or to, uh, to speak out, they won't do that because they're afraid of losing their popularity. Yeah, and I mean, I, in some ways, okay, I don't want to call it willful ignorance, but um, I was I was speaking to some friends um, of, of my mother the other day, and I mentioned Raif Badawi, mm. and they had no clue who he was. <laughs> and, I mean, they're, you know, they're all, they've been living in Canada for years. I mean, it's not like he hasn't, his name hasn't yeah. come up on television and, you know, articles and this and that, and 
no clue who he was. And yeah. like, like I said, I, in some I ways, it seems like that. they've got blinders on. Well, they want to. So there are those people who don't want to get involved because what we are doing is not uh, very pleasant stuff. What we are doing is challenging. They want to live their nine to five lives. As I said, they want to go to these biryani parties. They want, and that's fine. You know, they want to get their kids married. They don't want to be involved. So they make an independent decision. I have friends who have said that, Rahil, we will come for dinner to your house, but we don't want to discuss religion or politics because it's too, uh, you know, challenging, especially the work that you're doing. I say, fine, that's okay. You know, you don't want to discuss it. Uh, that's okay. So there are people who do not want to have anything to, but then now here's the irony. When something happens to one of their kids, then they come running to me and this has happened. Oh, my daughter is in love with a non-Muslim. Oh, my son has decided he doesn't want to be a Muslim anymore. Oh, somebody is trying to radicalize my children. So the, the point is only when it affects them directly is when they wake up and realize that they should have been part of this whole movement. I, I would say that a large part of the South Asian community doesn't know who Raif Badawi is. It's those of us who are activists and who've been lobbying for his release who, who are aware of this situation. They don't even know what is happening in politics in Canada or in, in America. I mean, they, and they don't want to. Yeah, I mean, and okay, I just not only South Asians. I mean, a lot of my Canadian friends. Uh, okay, I, I grew up. My father specifically, when we we moved to Canada in '75, um, I was six, and my father specifically moved us to a neighborhood that was not like started to be ghettoized. My aunts and uncles lived in um, on the south shore of Montreal. There was a large South Asian community, and my my dad was like, I didn't leave India to join, you know, to move to Little India in Canada. I want my kids to experience Canada, right? So I was always, I had very few South Asian friends. We lived in a predominantly white Canadian neighborhood. But even some, you know, my friends who grew up in Canada, and I speak to them, some of them are woefully ignorant of what's going on, and they, you know, they hear, like like I said, like, like this law in Quebec, they'll either say, oh, they're all racists, or they'll say, no, we have to ban religion from government. And I'm like, no, right. there, there, there is a better way. There, there, mm. We can't go to extremes. And I I, um, I heard someone talking about this. Sorry to, to ramble like this. Uh, and he was talking about how, so he, he, the way he described the polarization of society, he was talking about a, a centrifuge in chemistry. So, you know, the centrifuge pushes all the elements out to the side, and it spins and it spins. But if you don't control it, it's going to break apart. And to me, that's what it seems like is happening right now. Is like there's no one coming. Like, okay, if you're if you think Donald Trump has gone too far right, which you know I'm not going to argue with you there. It, the solution is not to go too far left. The solution is to try to come back to the center and pull people from, <laughs> from the. You know, well, the, the solution to all our issues is to come back to the center and obey. I'm sorry, but I have to uh, wind up soon. Oh, I have, no, no problem. I have an appointment at 11:15. Okay, so. Um, anyways, no. I'm, thank you very much. I, I know I was a little late, but thank you for your time. If you have anything else you have going on, or if you want to promote anything, let me know. I mean, thank you, thank uh, you. Enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate it. I hope I was able to speak uh, with some intelligence. And <laughs> you. oh no, I mean, I, 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 I'm a huge fan. Um, I'm very, very grateful that you're on. And, you. You know, if you're ever in Toronto, let us know. We'd love to meet, and oh, sure. uh, I'll keep you informed. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Bye.